Hey, it's Randall here, and in this episode of The Journal Club, we'll be discussing a new classification framework for athletes with special guest, Dr. Alana McKay. Alana completed a Bachelor of Science in Exercise, Health and Sports Science at the University of Western Australia in 2014, and went on to complete a postgraduate position within the Physiology Department at the Australian Institute of Sport. Since then, Alana has submitted her PhD titled The Effect of Dietary Manipulation on Iron Metabolism and the Immune System in Elite Athletes, which was undertaken in partnership with the Australian Institute of Sport, Western Australian Institute of Sport and the University of Western Australia. Alana joined the Australian Catholic University as a postdoctoral research fellow in 2020. Her research continues to explore the impact of diet and exercise on a range of health and performance outcomes in athletes with a specific interest in iron metabolism. We'll be back with Alana after a short message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Mick Hughes from Learn.Physio. Join me and a panel of world-leading renowned researchers and clinicians as we delve into the ever-changing world of physiotherapy, bringing you evidence-based masterclasses, blogs and insight interviews in partnership with some of Australia's and the world's leading physiotherapists. Head over to www.learn.physio to enrol in one of our online masterclass courses or sign up for our free weekly newsletter and join our community to stay up to date with new research and findings. Alana, thanks so much for joining me on the Journal Club this week. No, thank you for having me. Now, we're going to discuss a paper that you published, um, and it's only been recently published uh, this year, I think it is, um, where you've put together a, a new framework for the classification of athletes. First of all, congratulations on another publication. <laughs> thank you, yeah. Yeah. So, so give us some background, like... Um, you know, like we've, as a physio, like we've, I've spoken, uh, we talk all the time about how we classify athletes, whether they're elite or they're well-trained or they're recreational or level one or level two. So you and your team have put together a little bit of um, more structure around this. So tell us the background. Why did you decide to do that? Yeah, so this project really came out of some of the work uh, two of our PhD students were doing, Ella Smith and, and Megan Kirkman, and they're really looking at going through all the literature in sports medicine and sports science and understanding the female representation that's occurred. And when we were looking within that female representation, we wanted to know whether the females were elite or um, sedentary or somewhere in the middle, really. And we just really couldn't find a tool that we could use to classify these athletes across all sports and all scales of ability. Um, and we just realized that there's so many different terms used throughout the literature, whether it's well-trained or trained or elite or highly trained, or it was really difficult to understand what those terms really meant. So based on that work that was going on on the side, we decided to come up with a, a framework that they could use essentially to classify their athletes, but realized that this project was actually much bigger and could have much, much wider um, implementation for, for all practitioners. And, um, myself and Louise Burke and Trent Stellingworth, Ella Smith, Indigo Majuka, David uh, Martin, Vicky Tolfrey and Jeremy Shepherd all got together and every one of those people have a different speciality, whether it's endurance sports or, um, you know, middle distance sports, skill-based sports or Paralympic sports. And we came together and put this framework together that can be used really to um, classify athletes' training ability across all 
um, abilities and all sports. Does it matter? I mean, um, do, do, is it just semantics or does it actually make a difference to clinical practice and research? I think it does make a difference. I think we've seen, I think we use the example of beetroot juice um, as an example in the paper where the literature shows that it actually is probably effective for a tier three and below, so recreational athletes. But once you get uh, closer to the ceiling of performance being that elite level, we don't see as many performance benefits. And if our cohorts are mixed and we don't know in terms of ability or we're not defining what cohort we're using, I think we can be misinterpreting the, the literature and the research that's been done. I agree. I mean, I read some papers sometimes on cycling, for instance, and they'll talk about that they do a study on extremely elite cyclists. And then you have to say, can we extrapolate that those results and data to your recreational and then vice versa as well. So I think that kind of having um, the research particularly done in tiers means that we can then kind of apply those, that, those research finding to the tiers of the actual population on the ground. Yeah, and I think it's not that we need to exclusively look at tiers each time, but it's more just when we are doing research, having a systematic way that we can know what cohorts we're looking at within each paper, or if it is a mixed cohort, I think that's really important for the reasons you just said, yeah. Tiers that are in um, that you put in your paper, um, starting with tier zero, going up to tier five. So zero is sedentary, and then tier five is world class. So let's go through them one by one really quickly. So if you if you're a tier zero and you're sedentary, like what what are you? What kind of athlete? One thing I always say to to, to my patients is uh, everyone's an athlete, but just at different levels. So yeah. Yeah. So we really, I guess one of the aims of the paper was that everybody has a place. So you don't have to be, if any paper you're looking at and you're going to define the participant cohort, every single person has a place no matter their ability. So uh, tier zero, our sedentary population is those that don't meet uh, the recommended world organization guidelines for physical activity. So less than 150 minutes per week. So they are, would be defined as sedentary according to those guidelines. And then alternatively, we move into tier one, where it is those people that are meeting minimum uh, exercise guidelines of those 150 minutes per week, um, but they may not be training in any particular sport or for any particular reason. They're just physically active people. And I think that the two most interesting things about this, and you do this nicely in the paper where you put the percentage of the global population and also the Australian population there, 46% of the global population are in tier zero. And then 35 to 42 of the global population are in that um, recreational active, act, active group as well. So the vast majority of people are in zero and one. Yeah, and that was really important to us as well when we were coming up with this tiering is that it really met the population statistics. Because I think what we do read in sports science literature, as we said before, the amount of papers that read elite athletes, but really when we're talking about an elite athlete, it's the tiniest percentage. So when we went back and put some figures for some of these numbers, we did it for Australian population, just so we had something that was a bit more inclusive because the data for different parts of the world and we try to mesh it together, this can be a bit um, subjective. So we did both but, and they lined up fairly well. But yeah, the majority of the population really is sedentary, which is another issue in itself. But tier one of those people that are meeting exercise guidelines, most of them you wouldn't define as an athlete, yeah. No, all right. So then we've got uh, tier two, which is trained and developmental and tier three is highly trained and, and national level so do you want to talk to that yeah so i guess the differentiation now with tier two is that 
that uh, individual is training specifically for the sport that they're being classified against. So if you are playing soccer three times a week, that is the sport and therefore you would become a tier two. There's no performance standard. It's more an intention to train. And there's also a regular training interval of about three times per week. Um, tier three, on the other hand, is where our first performance standard kicks in. Um, so this, you need to be near the maximal training load for that sport and you're likely competing at the national level. So there is a, a performance standard that comes along with that tier three classification. And I suppose, again, looking at those statistics, I mean, it's only, uh, I'd started with the world, the global population data, I'll keep, I'll keep going with it. So tier three, highly trained national level athletes is only 0.014% of the population. Yeah. yeah, yeah, tiny amount of the population. And we actually, again, these numbers are really sort of our best fit at what we could put together about the data we could find. But also when we looked against many sports, we found this was about 20% of a world leading time. So if you think of the best marathon performance being around the two hour mark and 20% of that time, you really are looking at a smaller amount of the population that can run in that sort of bracket. Okay. Then we move right up to the top of the tree, tier four and tier five. Tier four is elite or international level. And then tier five is world-class. So it's pretty um, uh, rare territory, but I'm interested in the differentiation between um, the, the elite slash international and also the world-class athlete. So for instance, like in your criteria that a, a world-class athlete is like an Olympic medalist or a world champion, or I think they're in the top three to 20, you know, of, the, of their um, sport. Um, whereas an elite or an international level person is someone who's, let's say, competing in international teams. So, why, I'm interested in why you actually distinguish those two tiers um, and why they weren't essentially combined into one. Yeah, I think when we were looking at it, we were really thought that when we look at those tier five athletes, those world-class athletes, those athletes that can perform to within 2% of the world leading time, although they are the best in the world, they may have world records, they're almost a special special type of individual compared to somebody in a tier four where they could be the 300th best person in the world. And particularly when we're looking at small differences in say physiology or skill in some instances, we wanted an ability to differentiate those two. Um, I would say a lot of research would put those two together. It would be a tier four slash five research. But I think what we wanted to be able to say was that if a research paper is done, there's a great one Andy Jones has done about marathon running. Um, with the Nike project where he had a cohort of about 15 tier five athletes. That's exceptional and research doesn't really ever target those top 20 people in the world. Um, and usually they are case studies. And I think having that tier five differentiation allows uh, those studies to gain more traction because of the special unique type of individuals that they're being studied. Whereas tier four, it's still as good as it gets. You know, we're talking Olympic level athletes but differentiating 300th place at the Olympics compared to first place at the Olympics, it, it could be, um, you know, it's the difference between medals. So why shouldn't we look at it in terms of research and classification in the same way? That's a great answer. Um, some of the um, classifications of those tier five athletes are pretty clear. Like you look at someone like Ash Barty, you say definitely world-class. Michaela Schifrin, definitely world-class. Anyone who's won Olympic gold, world-class. But then I, there's some people then um, and athletes who I thought, mm, where, would, where would I put them? And I wrote them down and I thought I'd ask you the same as well. 
and just the good talking points. So one is NBA star LeBron James. So LeBron, you know, has been touted as the best basketballer for a long time. So where would you put him? What tier would he, would LeBron be? Yeah, and you've picked up a really great point about the class, the classification framework in that we put it together, but we really left it open for interpretation for the person using it. It's very flexible and it does have, allows that sort of um, subjective call to be made. And we've discussed some of these points in the paper. And one of them is that we try to keep um, classification to within a four-year cycle. So if you're using the performance outcome of that individual, we try to keep it within a four-year Olympic cycle or within um, a time frame that's relevant to the sport. Um, so LeBron, I would probably put still as a tier four athlete. He's no longer that world-class MVP athlete um, that we once had, but he is still playing in the NBA um, from what I know. And <laughs> therefore he would still be classified according to our framework in that tier four level. Um, but say five years ago, if we were to classify him, there's no doubt that he would be up in that tier five. Okay. Then another one that sprang to mind is this is this man called uh, Nimel Perja. So there's a Netflix series about him at the moment where he's done this extraordinary feat where he did 14 peaks over 8,000 metres um, in just over six months, which I think in adverted commas is a, is a world record. But he's not really competing at the Olympic Games. He's, he's not playing in the NBA, for instance. Um, he's clearly an elite athlete in the old, in the old terminology, in terminology, but again, under your system, like, did, can he fit in? Can it, is there, can, can we put someone like that in this criteria somewhere? Yeah. I think, again, this is sort of where the practitioner using the framework needs to make the call. So if you are looking at defining a cohort of, you know, uh, what was it? Peaking mountain climbers, <laughs> he would have obviously go straight to tier five. If we're looking at that as the sport that's been classified, he would fit into tier five. However, if he was in a study that was looking at runners, for instance, he may be able to run, but because he's not meeting that uh, tier two criteria of training three times per week in running, um, he wouldn't make that great. He'd be a tier one because he's meeting physical activity guidelines, but they're not specific to the sport that's being classified. So I would say if the whoever was doing this study, if they're classifying mountain climbers, he's a tier five without a doubt. If they're classifying something else where he may be a part of, he probably fit down in tier two because he's not training specifically for that sport. The other one that sprung to mind is that I'm a swimmer and uh, occasionally at my pool, um, an underwater rugby team turns up to train in, um, in the diving pool. So I looked it up and I, I, I found out that uh, there is a World Championships of Underwater Rugby and uh, in 2019 the Colombian team won the, uh, the, the World Championships of Underwater Rugby. So I was thinking about the captain of that team. Clearly the captain of the Colombian Underwater Rugby team would be um, the top of his tree. But if I look at the calibre of athletes that are training down at my local pool, who some of them are in the Australian team, I think some of them would beat me at the pub. There's no doubt about that with all due respect, but that's about it. So I just wonder with these obscure sports, um, with things that are just a little bit outside the mainstream, I mean, did, did you guys give some consideration to, to, to the classification of those people as well? For, so, for instance, that the captain of the Colombian team, I suppose, would be world-class, tier five, but maybe not. 
Yeah, I think we had a little bit of a discussion more around more conventional sports, but sports that have greater particip participation rates than others. So think of the depth of field within a sport, if I can put it that way. So again, uh, if we think of track and field in America, it's so densely populated and a sport that many people could be at, you know, a tier four level, but never get to go to the Olympics because they're so good. And then you can think of some of these more um, obscure sports, still Olympic sports, but maybe skateboarding and surfing, the newer sports that don't have the same depth of field. And when we look at say tier four in the elite cohort for track and field, we think the top 300, whereas in our paper, we talked about say something like snowboarding where it actually be tier four would actually only be the top 30. And I think when we start to talk about these obscure sports, that consideration comes in again, where you know, it might no longer be the top 30, it might even be the top 15 or the top 10, because we have to think of the population statistics and, and the spread of that across the tiers. And if, you know, again, it's specific to the sport. So if we're classifying uh, underwater, what was it, underwater water polo, underwater hockey? Underwater rugby. Underwater rugby. Yeah, you need to look, you, know, you need to YouTube it. You'll, you'll get, yeah. you'll, it's very entertaining. Yeah, I think if we're classifying that cohort alone, you know, these guys, will at least fit that tier two recommendation of training to, you know, certain times a week for the sport. But that doesn't mean, just because they're on the Australian team, the Australian team that may no longer fit that population statistics type spread and the depth of the, the field would have to come in as a consideration. And Alana, where do the, um, the disabled, um, the junior and also the masters athletes fit into this paradigm? Yeah. And, um, this is a really great question because we knew that they need to fit into the paradigm because we have really high level athletes in both masters, juniors and Paralympic sports. Um, but we're really still unsure of how they blend in um, or whether they need their own separate paradigms, I think is what our current thought process is. So for instance, when we're talking about Paralympic athletes, the spread across the population is not the same. So we would have lots of tier zero and tier one um, Paralympic or disabled individuals but then from there there's probably a bit of a jump up to tier four and tier five and and the density within tier two and tier three is probably not the same as an able-bodied population um, and similarly with masters and junior athletes if we're uh, classifying a cohort in which they're involved in and you're wanting to have a cohort of tier four runners and you have masters athletes in them they really need to be meeting the general cohort's tier four standards but if you're classifying only a group of masters athletes, you could probably move those performance standards slightly so that they fit the masters cohort. So I think it really comes down to the type of population you want to uh, classify, whether it's a mixed population or a, a specific population. And then I think the next step with these frameworks is really to look at it more specifically for a Paralympic athlete. Again, for a junior athlete, we have junior athletes that have rapid development and then they either plateau or other athletes that don't aren't seen as a junior athlete and pop up to tier four, tier five very quickly. So having a bit more understanding around the developmental and also the masters aspect, I think it's work that needs to be done still. Well, congratulations again on a very interesting and thought-provoking and useful paper. And thank you for joining us on the podcast, uh, the Journal Club podcast this week. Thank you. And thank you for having me. It's been great. We'll be back in a minute after this short message from our sponsor. If you're like me and sick of greasy, pore-clogging sports creams, then the Premax range of athlete and massage products are for you. Non-greasy, breathable 
and tried and tested in elite sport, Premax sets the benchmark in performance skincare. To find out more and experience the Premax difference yourself, visit www.premax.co. Be sure to sign up to the newsletter to get subscriber-only exclusive offers, invitations to Premax events, access to the Premax sports science blogs, and 10% off your first order. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Alana. If you'd like to connect with her, you can find her on at McKay Alana on Twitter. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on at Randall C Physio on Instagram and Twitter and Randall Cooper on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a favourable rating and review and sharing this episode with your friends. I'm Randall Cooper and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Journal Club.